Amen. Please be seated and turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 6. The passage is on the insert in your bulletin. You can see it there. We are in the first verses of Ephesians 6, which is the last chapter of this great book of God's grace. It is a book that celebrates all that has been done for us in Christ, the finished work of Christ applied to us by the sovereign action of God. This is about God's glory and our salvation. The first couple chapters, there's no way you could read it without recognizing it's all of God's grace. And this is the foundation that builds into the later chapters. The security we have as the sons and daughters of the living God through Christ. Why? The good pleasure of his will to the praise of his glorious grace so that all would look upon the salvation of sinful people like us and say that's God's doing. Glory to him. Only he can do it. No glory to man. All to him. And so when we come to the last chapters, it's with the promise of the indwelling Holy Spirit helping us as established sons and daughters to live according to God's will. Not live according to God's will so you could become the sons and daughters of God. There's no way you could construe it to be that. So it's important to mention that context. Every time we come to these, these heavy verses with wisdom and in, in direction and commands for the people of God, the children of God, to live out their salvation, to show their salvation in Christ. That's what we have for families. The last part of chapter 5 and the first part of chapter 6, we're talking about the Christian family as God has designed. Husbands and wives, children and parents. And last week we really focused on children and how this passage addresses them, the first three verses of chapter 6. Today we'll focus on verse 4. It's interesting, it's a short verse, verse 4, but it really summarizes what the Bible teaches throughout. And we'll see this as it relates to parents. Hear now God's holy word. This is his inspired word. This is his inerrant word. It's his authoritative word. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Father, we believe the work of Christ in our behalf and the ministry of your spirit in our hearts, that these are sufficient to do an amazing work in our marriages and our families. Where there are breaches, we know you can repair them. Where there are shortcomings, we know you can fill those. Where there are regrets, you can bring restoration. And where there is a sense of frustration and worry, you can grant us peace and calm to trust in you. Lord, we are profoundly affected by the knowledge of your love for us and our adoption as your children. As we read this passage, please make its meaning clear and help us to obey what it says for your glory and for our joy and our peace. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Over the years, I've kind of returned to a bit of a mission that I've thought of. I didn't write it out as such until more recently as I thought of missions in general and how helpful they can be as guideposts. But I think one that help, has helped me as a parent, us as parents, over these years is to come back to why are we doing this? What's the purpose of this? Because with every phase of your child's development in life, there's different focus. There, there's different 
um, concentration of things that are going on in their lives. There's changes that are always happening. And then you have the dynamics of your children together. We have a 22, a 20, an 18 year old and an 11 year old. And so we just consistently, like every year, we see a really big difference in the way they, who they are as people. It just never stops. And we're changing too as people, uh, entering different phases of our lives. So it's easy to get off track or forget how to apply God's word to our children and to our parenting, whatever stage you find yourself in. So this statement, and I have it on your insert at the bottom, I would suggest to you as a, a biblical mission, if you will, for remembering what you're doing in parenting. When all the stuff comes at you and your kids are different ages, different activities, different issues, come back to this. I believe it's biblically rooted, and I think it will, it will help you with the, when you know the what, uh, the particulars of how to help guide and direct your children there can be found in this kind of idea. And the statement is simply put this way. The most important component of our children's spiritual growth is their security in the finished work of Christ. Our main parenting goal is for our children to know, rest in, and follow Christ. Every other aspect of their life flows from their identity in Christ. It's easy to get caught up in all the details, but the big picture is we are engaging our children's lives so they're sure of Christ for them, so they rest in Christ. As they rest in Christ, they'll follow Christ. You can't make them follow Christ. You can't make them trust in Christ. But you can, by God's grace, provide a message in an atmosphere, a home, if you will, for them to have the most opportunity to lay hold of Jesus and recognize him and have security in him. All the other things we stress about in their lives actually are taken care of with this first point. Um, all those details you look forward to 18 years ahead if you're just starting out or, or when you look at your children, where they are and what they might do next, more important than whatever that is, is this issue. Their spiritual growth and their security in the person of Christ, who they are in Christ. In verse 4, if you notice, it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up. Bring them up. That's the word nourish or cherish. It's the same word used for husbands towards their wives in 529 where you're supposed to nourish and cherish your wife. The way Jesus does the church. Bring them up is, is related to the same root word. To nurture, to nourish. Bring them up. I, I guess the best illustration I could use for this process of bringing a child up, because it's not quick, would be how I go about planting my tomatoes and watching them come to fruit. I look forward to the day when I have more time to do a full garden, I would love to do that the way my dad did it. Um, but at this stage of my life, I don't have that time. But I do have time to get some good tomatoes going, usually six to ten plants. Some years I can spend more time tending than others. But I at least have a basic process that I would submit to you and then use it as a bit of an illustration for you. Basically, I'll buy my tomato uh, plants when they're small. I don't grow them from seed. But I like them about this high, no more than five inches, in a little bit of a cup with some soil in it. I take them, line them all out, dig my holes, take out off the cut part, and then I put a little bit of um, fertilized potting soil in the hole, and then I put them in the hole, and then I put a little peat moss over top of that to hold the moisture, then I add water. I admit 
I use artificial means. I use a little bit of miracle Grow when I first put them in. So they're kind of roided up. They kind of uh, are, are ready to endure uh, with some performance-enhancing stuff. And I, they're in there to start to get rooted. I want them to get rooted. So I really spend a lot of time focusing. When, the, when those plants are small and just planted, lots can go wrong early. So you've really got to be on top of it. And so I do that. I don't stake them right away. I wait about eight to 10 days. I water them every day. I make sure they're on the side of the house with the most sun. That's important for tomatoes. I make sure not to overwater them. You'll know if you're overwatering them, the little black dots will show up in the leaves later when the fruit appears. Little black dots on the tomato plant, the tomato fruit itself shows you're, you're probably watering too much, getting too much water. Constantly evaluating how much water is too much. Whatever the situation is, the plants on the right don't need as much as ones on the left because of where the gutter is, so on and so forth. So I set them up, 10 days go by, I get in with a stick, usually not much bigger than a big popsicle stick, and I shore them up with right near the stalk, and I tie a little piece of rope around each of them. I've used different things to hold them up because I need them to go straight early. That's very important for spacing, for them to get the sun so I can prune them as time goes on. Then I wait about another, usually it takes a couple weeks. Then I take off that stick, all the while looking for the dastardly tomato caterpillar. If you've ever seen this thing, it starts small, but it will devour your plant. I don't like to use pesticides, so I have to be watching over those worms and make sure they don't get there because early on they can do some real damage. So you're watching, you're hovering over to some degree, uh, especially in the early days. Then you put it in a cage. And when you put it in the cage, you have to be very careful to bend the branches up and then slide the cage over and then put them back over that bottom level of the cage. You prune the bottom, take the sucker shoots off if there's any yellowing plants. Every couple days you want to go through and take those out. But as they get to the cage place, the cage stage, at that point, you don't worry so much about every day watching them. They're going to start growing. The watering is important. Uh, but you'll, you're, you're less than as they get more established all that you have to pour into them. And then eventually the fruit comes. And so you start this process in April, May. You're hoping by late June, depending if you have some early girls in there. But if you don't, it's going to be July, maybe August. And I like it when they're still pumping out tomatoes into September. That's happened many years. Uh, and so this process is really, it's bringing up your tomatoes. It's nurturing them. It's starting very intensely early, making sure they're going straight. You're on them every day. Uh, you're watching over them. But then you're, you're lessening how much of that particular focus, but you're still doing things to give them guidance and direction and keep them healthy and strong. And eventually, they're, they're really on their own, and they're, they're growing fruit now. And there's fruit, and that fruit reproduces. I think this is a, a great illustration of parenting. Your children, when they're young, you're on top of every little thing. You really got no choice. If you don't, things will go haywire fast, right? I mean, they'll just, you know, they'll run, they'll run over the house. I had, you know, three, we had three little boys um, inside of just over four years old, was the oldest, and we had three of them at that time. And it was, uh, so we know how some of you, I mean, we look at you and know why you look a little tired. We get it. We understand exactly where you're coming from. Because those early days, it's nonstop. It's constantly working. It's constantly dealing with all the particulars. And they're just things like, you know, making sure they don't kill themselves, uh, making sure that you, they get fed and that they're safe and that they're, they're learning things as they go and they grow and they, they start to walk and all that goes into that. Then over time, you're doing, you're starting to, um, do less of the micro-guiding, you might say, and you're starting to direct in more general ways, and then it continues to loosen as they get older. I think that's what is meant by bringing them up. So it's a long process. It takes a long time, and it constantly involves changing your approach and your tactic and your strategy. Still, though, 
don't forget through the thickness, uh, the thick and thin of all that you're dealing with. The most important component of our children's spiritual growth is their security in the finished work of Christ. And it looks in how you communicate that's different as they're littler and as they grow older and as they learn the word of God, as they worship God, as they see you making Christ your priority, as they see you humbly walking with him, confessing your sins, living the Christian life in front of them transparently and openly, that's part of the fertilizing you're doing as you go. Your presence there, that's what they're watching as well as your words. This is bringing them up and it's a long process that does not happen quickly. Parents, ultimately, in this verse, verse 4, by the wisdom of the apostle here through the Spirit of God, this wisdom for parents, we're called to encourage the spiritual growth. This is that component of the mission we're talking about in verse 4. Call to encourage the spiritual growth of our children. And if you look at verse 4, there's a negative and a positive um, aspect to the verse, to the instruction. It starts with the negative where it says, don't provoke your children to anger. Uh, that, I think the reason it comes first is that parenting and family life is so intense and so fast, uh, it's such a fast pace that it's easy for us to act out of our flesh in response all the time and we'll tend to act in wrong ways if we're not safeguarding against them. So Paul says, before we can get to the, the positive part of what you should do in engaging your spiritual, the spiritual growth of your kids, be warned of some of these things. Because some of these things you do could actually provoke them in a way that they're not able, they're able to handle the fertilizing or they're not able to handle the things you're doing because they're, they're in some way damaged or they're some way um, discouraged or they're some way uh, embittered and they can't receive what you're giving them. So beware of these things before you get to full-on considering all the engaging you're doing to help them grow. Recognize and resist, we might say. Then it goes to the positive where we're taught to or told to nurture them or bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's start at verse 4, or start at the beginning of verse 4 where it says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. This is that warning to us as parents, and it says to fathers primarily, and that's important. It's addressed to fathers because we know the structure that we've seen already as the husband is the head of the wife or is the one who's supposed to be leading that relationship, and that's the family relationship. Fathers, we are the responsible one before God primarily. Absolutely, it's a team effort as parents. Uh, men are wise to recognize the helpmate that their wife is. Most very, very likely, she'll have much better insight on the particulars of the parenting roles we should have. But dads, you are responsible, though, before God for this atmosphere. Um, it's similar to how the elders of the church are told that they are responsible for the watching of the sheep. They will answer to God for that. They are answerable to God. Similarly, dads, fathers, we're responsible for our household's demeanor, for the household's uh, it's the atmosphere, the culture of it, however you want to describe um, the temperature, the spiritual temperature, as I've seen written, of the household is um, dictated by the way the father leads it. Um, he's going to be wise to utilize all the spiritual gifts that God's given the family, but he is called to oversee this. But when we talk about fathers not provoking children to wrath, of course, we mean parents together will have part in how this works itself out in the actual home. This teaching of Paul is revolutionary because like much of what he teaches about, about family, about husbands and wives and children. Because against the Roman backdrop, 
the father was a, a sovereign and could well be just a tyrant, and that would have been fine in the Roman, the Roman world. William Barclay, who comments on this passage, reminds us of what it was like in the day that Paul wrote. Barclay said, a Roman father had absolute authority over his family. He could sell them as slaves. He could make them work in his fields, even in chains. He could take the law into his own hands regarding his children. He could punish his children any way he want. There's no, there would be no ramifications for it legally. Even the death penalty on his child could be, could be put, could be placed. Not so obviously for Christian parents. Just like Paul writes in a revolutionary way about husbands and wives, he writes similarly to, to parents and children and to fathers especially. Fathers are supposed to be spirit-filled believers who look to shepherd their families, to see their families growing in depth and knowledge of Jesus, their Savior. That's his, his end goal. That's what he longs to see happen. And together with his wife, they work to see this occur. A picture of self-controlled restraint is what Paul gives, not someone who's loosed with his temper and just wants everything done just the way he wants it or everybody will pay. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Colossians 3 is a mirror passage. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Don't provoke your children to anger. Don't provoke them to anger lest they be discouraged. The two passages Paul speaks of concerning this. Now, first of all, what does it mean to provoke our children? How might we provoke them? It means to poke at them until they're irritated. Or it means to do something that exasperates them to where they don't, can't follow anymore because they can't please you. You're doing something that is causing them to, be, uh, to feel hopeless. Um, something that's riling them up so they can't function. Um, something that might embitter them, or it, it's, it's goading them to a place of resentment. Something you're doing is just binding them up so that their spirit is broken and they can't follow what's being given to them as instruction or guidance or mentoring. Don't provoke your children to anger. Pause and think of what you're doing, what we may be doing that might be hindering their ability to receive the good graces God has for them in his word. One Bible commentator, or I should say translator, puts it this way. Do not fret and harass your children, parents. Do not, be, do not overcorrect your, your children. Another commentator, the twig is to be bent with caution, sort of like when you're bending that tomato branch up into the cage. If you bend it too much, you'll break it, or you can even bend it and it'll, it'll die. The twig is, is to be bent with caution, not broken in the efforts of a rude and hasty zeal. Don't provoke them to anger, the passage says, or to frustration or discouragement, to fury, to a place where they lose heart. They lose energy to pursue the course they are on. They go listless, sullen in frame and mind. I listed for you just a few ways in which we might find ourselves provoking our children. There are probably many others. Now, when I say them, they could conjure for parents depending on the stage of your parenting, some level of regret. I would almost say every parent has some level of regret. We know our fallenness and our weaknesses, our shortcomings, the sins we've committed, the mistakes we've committed. So I'm not attempting at all to lay these out for that reason, to make us feel bad about the way we're doing it or have done it. It's a gentle uh, reminder to us of ways we might not recognize provoking 
going on. And the reason why it's so important to address them is because you can't get to the place we all want to be, which is to positively guide them according to Christ and in his word and to think about the world in light of what Jesus would say. You can't get there if we're doing something that's just holding them back. It's holding them from receiving that instruction because they're angry or they're upset or they're frustrated. One common thing that I, and by the way, every one of these, as I was going through the list, I was just, could think of examples of ways I've done these things at some point in our parenting. I could recognize it. So it's not uh, in any kind of spirit of judgment. This is the realities of parenting. And the more we know about and are aware of it, the better chance we have at seeing this addressed and helped. Unreasonableness is, is an overarching way of describing when we ask of children things that are beyond their ability. Uh, we, just because we can imagine it doesn't mean they can take it all in. We just put too much on them and they can't handle it all. It's unreasonable and it weighs them down. It provokes them. We load them with so many demands that frustration is inevitable. That's where it's going to end up. One way we can be unreasonable is we're, we're consistently changing or we're regularly changing our expectations. One minute, one minute this pleases, the next minute it doesn't. And the child never really knows um, what to expect. There's no reason behind it. Unreasonableness could also be we're just unwilling to explain the reason behind it. I mentioned last week, I think it's important. Our children should have the ability to say to us, mom or dad, why do you have this rule? Or why is there, why is there a guideline? Now, they're called by God to accept the answer you give. But we should have think through with some reasonableness why we have this particular guideline or house rule in place. A lack of this will cause definite frustration, which will hinder mentoring and guiding. Fault finding is another one where you think of parenting as consistently, it's not about directing in the positive, but noticing everything your, your child's doing wrong. You're talking too loud, you're talking too much, you're doing something annoying, or put that down, put that up, put that away, get away, and it's this nonstop fault finding about things they're doing. You know, you're, you're, you're talking too much, or you, you're not saying this word, right, and it's just nonstop, fault finding. Inconsistency, involved in their lives sometimes, and other times they're not. Not reliable falls in this. Yes, I'm going to come to your game, and then you don't come to their game. This kind of thing. They can't depend on you because you're inconsistent. Playing favorites. You may not think of yourself as this, but think it through the child's eyes. Um, granted, Joseph's brothers were jerks, but it wasn't the best move of Jacob to give him a coat of many colors. It's not the best move. There are better moves. And think in terms of the way your children see how you treat the sibling group. And you might find that there could be, sometimes it's the one that's most compliant, you just find yourself gravitating towards because they're just do it easily. You don't want the fight. But that still can come off as though you love one more than the other Unf and, and, and you're unfair. And that causes, it provokes, especially as in an adolescent, that sense of justice and the hormones combined with it and they're mad. And it makes it difficult for the purpose of discipleship. Harshness. Speaking harshly to them, being mean to them, crushing their spirit verbally, but also physically, physically abusing them, hurting them physically or in, in a way that you think is discipline, and it's not discipline. It's, it's abuse. Those are ways that will, con that will scar in a deep way that are very difficult to overcome anything you say after that. John Stott said, they are little people in their own right. As such, they are to be respected and on no account to be exploited, manipulated, or crushed. They're not yours. They're people who are God's, placed in your stewardship. And this is important for us to remember when it comes to harshness. 
comparing them to others. I've caught myself doing this a few times with the boys. Your brother never did that. Don't do that. That's bad. Uh, because your brother did a whole bunch of other stuff. I'm just not mentioning it right now. I just want to manipulate you at this moment. That's all I'm doing. So comparing to others, they're their own person. Every child's different. And this is frustrating. I won't say it isn't. Probably my biggest complaint in the parenting scheme that God has laid down, it pros fall. It's not, I'm not blaming God, but I'm just saying, I thought we have our first child. Okay, now we can figure some stuff out. And we got a doozy for the first one to figure stuff out. So it really, really put us into overdrive. Okay, the next one comes should be easier. Now, to some degree, that's true because he was quieter about things, but had a whole nother set of issues that we had to work with and deal with. Okay, we've had one personality type, a different personality type. We're good for the third one, whatever he may be. Nope, weren't ready for him either. Uh, it's, they're all different. They're different by God's beautiful design. They are individually different. They have con connections because they're brothers, um, and there's, they're in the same home. There's lots of things that are, are similar, but there's, they're just different people in how they approach things. That requires all sorts of, of effort to not compare to the others because it's not fair. Then we have a, an 11-year-old girl come into the mix, or a, a little girl come into the mix who's 11, and that's a completely different thing altogether. I'm still trying to figure out and if, can't find the manual, but I am sure that it'll become clear as time goes on, the Lord directs, and I learn from you all as well. Comparing other, to others, I emphasize this because we have to recognize their individuality as children. Failure to express approval and love. I can spend a lot of time on this. I've been reading on this because an old, an old seminary colleague of mine is writing nonstop on this topic. He's convinced through sociological study, I don't think you need it to see this, seems obvious enough, that one of the key indicators for the health and strength of young men is directly tied to their father's approval and vocalized love for them. He, he can show it over and over again, the difference between people who had that and didn't. Doesn't mean God's grace doesn't overwhelm and, and so forth. But the benefits to spoken approval, especially from fathers to sons, but this is true to all your, to all your children, but parents to children, vocalizing your approval of the things they do. You don't realize how much you do to correct, and you have to do a lot of it. And sometimes you think the one or two times that you say something approving covers it all. Whatever, however much you're speaking approval, it's probably not near enough. I know that's true for myself. The more you speak it, the more confidence it gives your, your child about your love for them. And by the way, it mirrors what God's love is for us. He always approves of us in Christ. Even when he corrects us, he approves of us in Christ. When you sin and fall, he still approves of us in Christ. But you can't do this. You shouldn't do this. That's true, but the spoken approval and saying you love them, hugging them, grabbing them and hugging them. This has been a challenge because I used to hug and kiss my boys all the time when they were younger. Um, but then they got to some age, I'd say, I want to say 12 or 13. Some were better than the others, and the ones that were better will get more of an inheritance, more deer heads on their walls eventually, the ones who hugged me longer. But at some point, they all kind of shut down a bit, and I had to wrestle them. I'm not even kidding you. I would grab them and bear hug them until the point where they could break out of the bear hug, which wasn't that long ago. And I don't care. I'm going to hold you awkwardly for the next 10 seconds, and I won't let you go until you do. Please, Dad, will you quit this? No, I'm not going to quit it. Now, at least when the two older ones come back from college, they give me hugs without even thinking about it. And I say I love them more now and get a, I love you back more now than I ever did for the five-year span between 12 and 17. I'm not saying that I did something great before it. I'm just telling you, you can't say you love your children enough. You can't say, speak your approval to them enough. 
Because when you don't, it builds, there's a certain insecurity that happens in us. The world is telling them a different message. The world is not saying that you're special or that you're good or you're worthy. It's telling you in everything it, it forecasts that you're not. And as soon as you trip up, it jumps on you. They have to have somebody that will always approve and love them as people. I don't mean everything they do. Don't misunderstand me. But when they do something that's approved worthy, approve them. Uh, they're going to need it because why? It's a picture of what God does for us. It's a picture of the security we have in Christ. This is what we're, we're trying to model to them. Yes, we discipline, but we also need to approve. Martin Luther said something among the many wise things he said. He said, spare the rod and spoil the child. That's true. But beside the rod, keep an apple and give it to him when he's done well. I mean, we have better stuff than apples now to give to them. Overprotection. That's the other way you can really provo provoke them to wrath. When you just... When you keep that early stage of developing the tomato every day over it all the time, and you just keep doing it, at some point you gotta, you got to step back. You cannot hover over them all the time. Neglect or withdrawal. Not giving personal attention. Being too passive. Just letting things happen. Spoiling them. Overindulgences. These are just some things that come to mind. You probably can fill in some others. But we come again to the passage. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. If I would summarize the best way to avoid provoking, it would be to maintain a humility towards your children concerning your frailty and your mistakes. Admit when you're wrong. When you realize it, don't dig your heels in and just stay there because you're mom or dad. Admit you were wrong. Go to them and tell them you were wrong. Admit your sins. They know them already. Like you're not hiding them from them. They absolutely know you better than anyone else. Ask for their forgiveness when you fail them. Be honest about your frailty. This may be one of the greatest ways we can demonstrate the gospel to them. We know we failed and we are comfort comfortable enough to go to them and ask forgiveness, humble ourselves in that way, knowing we need to receive their forgiveness as a brother and sister in Christ, even though they're our child. I love what Joel Beakey writes about parenting and he said something that has stuck with me ever since I read it. I share it with you. Children are not looking for perfect parents. They are remarkably forgiving. They have an uncanny way of knowing who their parents are and what they stand for. It is hard to keep secrets from anyone when we live under the same roof. Children are always reading the books of our lives. Besides the Bible, the way we live our faith from day to day is the most important book our children will ever read. What children need is not to see a perfect mom or dad, and certainly not a mom or dad who never says, I'm sorry. Remember, what is our mission, everybody? The most important component of our children's spiritual growth is their security in the finished work of Christ. Our main parenting goal for our children is to know, rest, and follow Christ. Every other aspect will flow from this. Everything you're concerned about, worried about, stressed about will find its answer in their security in Christ. And when you are humble with them, admitting where you're wrong, going to them for forgiveness, talking that through, that demonstrates gospel, gospel confidence and gospel guidance that they need to hear for their own failures. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. That's the negative part. But now to the positive part of verse 4. Um, you might say in that section, we are recognizing and resisting some negative parental practices we might be prone to. Now let's go to the positive angle on this, where, we be, where we're engaged, where we're guiding and, and directing. Verse 4b, the second part. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There's that phrase, bring them up. This means nourish 
or feed them. This means to assure them, cherish them. The same word from Ephesians 5.29. And there's a gentleness in this term. There's a gentle care. I was reading Kent Hughes in preparation for this, and I love what he said. He, and he's talking to dads again, and I apologize for always referring to this. Sometimes it's personal when you're preaching on parenting and you're thinking of yourself, and you shouldn't think of just yourself when you're the pastor. But I mean this to be for parents as well. Kent Hughes said, men are never more true men than when they are tender with their children, whether holding a baby in their arms, loving their grade schooler, or hugging their teenager or a grown son or daughter. I love the nurturing sense, the bring them up. It's, it's a, a tenderness. Even more pointed, if you've, had your, if you've been baptized in, in the Presbyterian church or a Reformed church or you've seen the baptisms here, the third vow that I read to the family is so important for us because it mirrors the second part of chapter 4, or of, of verse 4 that we're looking at. Do you now unreservedly commit your child to God, I ask, and promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before them a godly example, that you will pray with and for them, that you will teach them the doctrines of your holy religion, of our holy religion, and that will you strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's a, a large vow about how we carry out the second part of verse 4. Bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. The first point. The second point, bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. The discipline of the Lord. Now, you might think this only refers to like discipline or uh, punishment or spanking or these kinds of things. That's not what the phrase means in this context. It really refers less to what we might call corrective discipline and more about formative discipline or formative guidance, or yes, there's going to be some stopping from here to go here, and no, you can't go there. The second verse or word, instruction, is more about corrective verbiage, but now we're talking about the general overall demeanor of guiding their life into a certain direction. So fathers are responsible for providing a home that has a place it's steering towards, mom and dad working together to provide their children with a firm guidance that's directed, it's unapologetic, it's indoctrinating. Because if you're not indoctrinating, they're getting indoctrinated. So, in, so indoctrinating is not a bad word. It's a, training them is the, the way the Lord has ordered the universe and w- the way the Lord has answered our problem as sinners. It's, it's answering the, the ultimate question for all of us, how we are right with God, and steering them to understand that back to the main point of everything we're doing. It's the training of the Lord. I don't know if you thought about this, but teaching our children the gospel of grace and really understanding it in the context of our life, that's the way you see discipline work out in the life of your child. That's the way they're trained to obey. They obey God on the basis of the grace that they understand God gives them. I know this is true because not only have I seen it work itself out in my own life, the grace of God having that ability to help me obey, I've seen it in children's lives, my children's lives, but in Titus chapter 2, This is more important than all those anecdotal pieces. In Titus 2, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. How do we live self-controlled, upright, godly lives? The thing we would say we would want for our children, and that's the misnomer. What you should want for your children is that they understand the grace of God in Christ. Then, because of the grace of God in Christ, they will see these fruits in their lives. That's what it says. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, training us 
to renounce. So the grace of God trains us. It's exactly what John Newton meant when he said, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." The grace of God to make me a son or daughter made me look up and say, Lord, how can I follow you and do what you want me to do? It's not do what God wants you to do and he'll love you. He loves you. You're in him. You can do what he wants you to do in light of this. And I want to. That's what it means when we're talking about training them or raising them in the discipline, bring them up in the discipline of Lord. It's the, of the Lord. It's not a graceless, Christless home. It has to be laden with those things. And you're going to say, but man, that doesn't look like my home. Things are ugly. This, I know. That's how they'll be. What's the answer? The gospel. You've got to pause everything. Go back to it. Admit to your, your kids. We've gotten off on this thing. We're, we're all into being on each other and we're at each other's throats. Let's pause. Family meeting. Whenever I would say that to the kids, you could always see the boys. At family meeting time. Now I text. Family meeting, group text, and then we all get in the family room. Regroup. Go back to the gospel. Never stop. Train them in the Lord. Train them in the word. Train them with the word that takes them to Jesus. Show them their sin. Show them our sin, our sin in general. Show them danger that comes from this, but show them God's provision for sin and death and hell through Christ. That's bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. That's that firm guidance. Now we move to the instruction of the Lord. The discipline of the Lord, now the instruction of the Lord. Now we're getting into specific warnings. These are corrections that are coming. This is teaching that's going on. This is, as you're living, you're living your life, there will be times where they'll move in a direction where you'll have to say, whoa, no, don't go there, don't do this. You can't do this because of this reason. This is the instruction of the Lord. You're helping them to understand it themselves, but you are being you are being um, outright about what they have to know concerning God's word and his will for them. It's a loving correction. If the one is firm guidance, discipline of the Lord, then loving correction is instruction. We confront them when they might go in a place that's bad. So far, Paul has a couple times gone back to the Old Testament to draw our attention to something we should continue to carry out. I think we have this here. Earlier, you remember when he's talking about husbands and wives, he referred back to Genesis 2 and said, the two shall become one flesh. Then just a few verses before the passage we're in, referring to children obeying their parents, he goes back to the fifth commandment in Exodus 20, honor your father and your mother. He doesn't explicitly cite Deuteronomy here, but this phrase, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We can find this topic or this this kind of thread throughout the Old Testament when the children of Israel were told how to raise their covenant children. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and following, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So that's the command. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you Walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now clearly, uh, when God's speaking through Moses here, it's not saying that every second of every day has a distinct um, catechism involved with it or a distinct formal teaching. It's just making the point clear that you have to have the whole of a child's life especially um, in connection with God's perspective and view. 
When they're growing up, this is the most important time for this to occur, just like when you're growing up a tomato plant. It, early on, it just demands a kind of vigilance that's not true throughout the whole process, but right there it really is. And God's saying to Moses, you have come out of Egypt. Egypt is utter paganism. That's all they had known is pagan worship. Now they had known the redemption of God. They knew some of it from what had been said to them while they were in slavery, the recollections of God. But then God brings them out with an amazing picture of his redemption in the Exodus. But they still have Egypt in, their be- in, the, in the rearview mirror. So Hebrew parents, it's so important that you recognize the living God, the true God, the only God, the one who's your savior. And it's really important that every moment you have opportunity, you have your children in a place where they're having this bolstered, where their perspective is encouraged, or at least it's not being attacked. You're in a spot to where you can hear. This is important when we come to verse four of the passage before us. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Because it's full well known that it won't be long until they're on their own and they'll be exposed to all manner of stuff. They just have to be ready for it. The plant has to be strong so when the storms come, it's big and strong enough and it can still bear that fruit even though the storms come. Bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord is a thoroughgoing endeavor. There's no other way to assess the biblical data. It's not saying it'll happen easily or with very little time spent. It is what you're reading and what you're gathering is true. It's involving an overseeing of the whole of things related to our children's discipleship process. Now what's beautiful, like it is for our personal lives, is you we're placed in this church with other Christians. We're part of the larger body of Christ. There's so many resources for us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. We have the local church strengthening families so families can apply it. If you're new believers, it's a lot of times fathers, they they're come to Christ, they didn't have an upbringing where they know the word, they feel deficient. The church should be helping you with this, providing you what you need to grow yourself to then direct your children. Together, we have the spiritual gifts in the congregation to help families where there's brokenness that happen and it happens all the time in our families. We can come along one, one another. So it shouldn't overwhelm you what's being said here. It's not all up to you. Together, we work as God's people. Discipline and instruction, firm guidance, loving correction. Fathers, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Guide and warn. This is important. I think it's important to say, because I notice, uh, you know, every time a preacher comes to a passage like this over the generations, it's probably unique the specific applications he might draw out because the situation could be different. If I was in Nigeria preaching this, maybe I'd have something different to say to parents uh, than I would say to you. Or if I was in another part of the world, you name it, whatever it may be. But I think what's important here, to be really pastorally honest with you, the biggest thing I'm finding to be a difficulty for us is it's hard for us to find the time necessary to do the kind of discipleship of our children that we know we really ought to be doing, biblically speaking. It's just a challenge for all of us. I find it to be consistently the problem and the frustration I have. So one of the things we try to do in every era is answer that a bit or provide, at least as a church, as much opportunity to help you with that. That's exactly why we started the school. Now, it's not to say everyone should send their kids to the school. I don't mean that. There are many ways that Christian parents could live out this commandment to raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But that was the the reason. We thought on a covenantal level, let's provide for this. And when we did it, it wasn't really reactionary to what was going on in the world. It really wasn't. It was more, let's not lose this era where they're really really uh, ready to take in discipleship and the word and the gospel as we're talking about it, the world through the lens of God's word. Let's do that. You know, at that time, I would say 
honestly, even when we started the school in the late 90s, I would say there was still a bit of a Christian friendly in, in public schools. In, in Kansas City, I'd say that was true. But then something switched to unchristian not too long after that, where it wasn't that they were anti-Christian, but they were unchristian. Now it's full-on anti, and, and this is just the truth of the matter. Five years ago, six years ago, I preached a sermon, June 28th. I didn't know that would be the week that the Supreme Court would legalize gay marriage. I had already planned to do a sermon called, Did God Really Say That Marriage Is Between One Man and One Woman? And it was days after that I preached that sermon. You can go and look at it online. Um, and it's, it's pretty exhaustive in the amount of stuff I drew out there. I'm not going to go back over that. But at that time, after I preached it, I had several brothers and sisters in the church, you know, interact with me on it, and that's fine. We should always be open to discuss. If I say something that offends you, come talk to me about it, or better yet, talk to Pastor Nathan about it. I want to be open about that. Uh, but we just have to have, a pastor has to have the discussion with the flock, and if I'm wrong, I, I, I need to stop saying it. But I said at that time that I thought with that, that decision, that the public schools would go pretty quickly uh, to indoctrinating on a heavy level with regard to that, that sexual ethic. Because anything that's a law, the public school has to promote as such. And that's a, a wickedly unrighteous law, make no, defense, no, no, no bones about it, absolutely. And that marked a difference that we'd not seen before. It was a difference. And I was sure, I said, in five to ten years, it will be really full-blown, and you'll see it. And I had multiple people tell me, and this isn't I told you so, but uh, multiple people told me, I think you think it's happened too fast. We have more time. We have more time. We were both wrong. It happened way quicker than I thought. We are absolutely there. And it's important to know this. Be, uh, be, it's not just me saying it. I have a, a neighbor friend who told me um, of their, in their situation in Blue Valley where they had a, it was an elementary school where there was a child transitioning by their parents from male to female. And uh, they got an email telling everyone to make sure you let all your kids know this is fine. You, you just stay back and, 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 and don't say anything mean. If you say anything mean, then you're going to be disciplined. Um, and I'm hearing from other people anecdotally that that's not uncommon anymore. I know two years ago, my daughter's basketball game, we were basically told, hush, hush, there was a boy becoming a girl playing on the team against her in third grade transitioning um, in, in the Blue Valley rec system. Um, don't say anything. Shh, shh, be quiet. And, and I, one grandfather was there, didn't know any of this, and says, isn't that a... It's not, I know it's funny, but it's not. It's wicked. It's, ab it's not the kid. It's the parents. That's the problem. And now you're, if you, you just have to recognize this is the world we're living in. And I can't very well stand up and say, raise them up according to the discipline and instruction of the, the Lord and not give some warning that we are far past now the phase where this is something we might be able to just endure and it, it will make it. Uh, it would be very difficult to, for the church to do anything to offset 14,000 hours of that instruction. There was a man named Paul Blanchard. He wrote, there was, two commun there was two humanist manifestos. In 1933, there was one called, it was called the Humanist Manifesto. It was meant to undergird the public school system's philosophy. I don't mean every locale took it this way, but this is how it happened in many locales. In the East Coast, it was very prevalent, less so here. Anyways, in 33, that was written. That started to really organize the way school curriculum would go, and the whole idea was to subtly get religion out of it. In 1973, there was a revision done, and Paul Blanchard was one of the key people that oversaw that. And some 25 years ago, when I did a study on Christian education in general, I read several of the things he wrote, and I was shocked at the way he said it. Sherry was at Wichita State doing elementary ed, and she got some of the same undergirnings from the National Education Endowment or Association, who would tell them, literally, listen, the biggest problem you will face as elementary teachers are the parents. They're going to constantly want to butt in. But your job 
for society's sake is to beat out the parents. That's what she was taught in 1993 to 96. Lots happened since then. And Blanchard wrote in the late 70s this, our schools may not teach Johnny to read properly, but the fact that Johnny is in school until he is 16 tends to lean towards the elimination of religious superstition. Who cares what they get? But as long as they are not religious when they come out. Again, check me if I'm wrong. Otherwise, let's discuss it. We paid off the building. Can we not afford to do what we can to have every kid that wants to be here, here? We got to get our kids out of there. Joel Bell said this, everyone is in religious education, just depends where it is. Education is never neutral. Most evangelical Christians continue to leave the primary task of teaching their children to the secular estate. Secularism is never as neutral as it sounds. Bells went on. It's a high-octane religion of its own, imposed on Christians at their own expense. These high priests of ultimate American values, from kindergarten through the great graduate programs of state in the state universities, tell us what is politically correct. They tell us what to believe about our origins, about what is wrong with the human condition, about how to make everything right again. These are not merely educational concepts. They are most profoundly religious issues. Fathers, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Whatever it looks like, just know what the command is to us and see how it comports with whatever we're doing. And the church needs to do whatever it can to help every family provide this. Whatever it looks like for you, we need to do the best we can. The most important component of our children's Spiritual growth is their security and the finished work of Christ. And our main parenting goal is for our children to know, rest in, and follow Christ. Every other aspect of their life flows from their identity in Christ. David Strain, a pastor that I know of, wrote this in concluding his statements on this. And I think it's well said and I want to share it with you. Polite, good-mannered, socially well-adjusted, thoroughly religious children are not our target. They're not what we're after. Superficial, formal, behavioral change is not enough. Satan is perfectly happy with nice, moral, religious children. No, what Paul wants is for Christian children to know Jesus Christ and to obey their parents in the Lord because they love the Lord Jesus more than anything and they want to honor him. What Paul wants is for Christian fathers to be leaders in their homes, spiritual thermostats, setting the temperature high and leading their household to the throne of grace. Training with the word, training with the gospel of grace, and admonishing, discipling, warning, and always aiming at the heart and pressing Christ on the consciousness and souls of their sons and daughters. And then he says, and I mirror these, these comments of his, may God give to our families grace that children clinging to Jesus with hearts changed by grace may begin to obey their parents in the Lord and where fathers loving the Lord for themselves, steep for themselves in holy scripture, are ministering to their charges with patience and forbearance and compassion and tenderness, the unsearchable riches of Christ. May the Lord do it all for his great glory. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the sufficiency of your word. We thank you for Christ, who is our sufficient savior, and for your spirit, who is our sufficient helper. Your sufficiency is what us as parents need so desperately. Your sufficiency is what our children need. Please renew and refresh our understanding of your grace and our calling as parents. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's together turn to 336. We'll stand 
and sing verses one through four. This is our hymn of response, spirit strength of all the weak as the elders and ushers come to prepare the table.